The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Appreciate you all being here. We're going to talk about truth and comfort this morning. Um, Just want to start out the new year with encouraging you to the fact that God is in control. As crazy as things can get at times, we just have to realize that He's ruling, He's reigning. Whenever someone asks me, and I get asked this question a lot, does eschatology matter? My response is always the same. I say, does truth matter? And hopefully they respond with absolutely, truth matters. So if truth matters, all truth matters. And this is not just you know, in the biblical realm, truth matters, but especially biblical truth. And nothing, I think, is more important than theology proper, which is the doctrine of God. I think it's imperative that what we believe about God is true. And so many people have ideas and things about God that they believe that are so far from Scripture that, you know, we could say they've just kind of invented God in their own image. What we believe about God affects how we live. Theology is very practical. It touches our lives in every day. Worry, anxiety, fear, depression can be the result of a faulty theology. A proper view of God, it's what strengthens us in the midst of extremely difficult circumstances. Circumstances like we've been dealing with for a couple of years now. I mean, I don't think any of us have ever seen the country and the situation it's in now, or the things that are going on that, you know, a year ago they were conspiracy theories, and now they're all happening, you know? And I really think if your view of the sovereignty of God is not correct, then the political situation could literally drive you to drinking or the nut house, or something along that line, okay? And the solution to our fear and our anxiety is not a psychologist, it's not a counselor, it's not a self-help book. Our solution is theology proper, a study of God. We must come to know the God of the Bible. And that's why I'm constantly encouraging you to read your Bibles. And hopefully you've got your reading program going, and you started already, and you're working on another year, you know, of just spending time with the Lord and getting to know Him a little better. Martin Luther said this to Erasmus. He said, your thoughts of God are too human. I really think that most of us fall into that category. Our thoughts of God are too human. We just think about God what we want to think about Him instead of what the Bible says about Him. A.W. Pink said this, The God of modern religious thought no more resembles the supreme sovereign of the Bible than does the dim flickering of a candle resemble the glory of the noonday sun. Only as we come to know the God of the Bible will we know what it is that He expects from us. Does He expect anything? I'd have to say that most Christians live as if God expects nothing of them. So what does God expect from us? Well, I think we could name a lot of things, but what would be number one? What do you think the number one thing is that God wants from us? Fellowship. What else? 
Obedience. It's a one-word answer. It's faith. Okay? Hebrews 11.6 says this, Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and He rewards those who seek Him. The God who created us, He wants us to trust Him. Now the writer of Hebrews lays down here an axiomatic truth. He uses the aorist tense in the infinitive of to please. So this statement is universal in its application and it's timeless. The idea is without faith it's impossible to please Him at all. And it's not belief in the existence of a God that's meant here, but the existence of the God, the God of the Bible. And the God of the Bible, we have to understand, He's holy. He's just. He's good. He's loving. He's wrathful. He's merciful. He's sovereign. In order to live by faith, we really have to believe that God is who He says He is in the Scriptures. And I think it should be obvious that we really can't live by faith if we don't understand what faith is. You know, as big a part as faith plays in the Christian life, I think most people couldn't explain it, couldn't break it down if you asked them. So if someone asked you, what is faith? Could you give them an explanation? I would say that most people involved in churchianity couldn't really give you a good definition. I think most people have a wrong definition of what faith is. Just by you, the way you hear people talk about faith, well, we just need to trust God for this. Where did he say anything about that? You know, it's just more hope on some people's part, I think. Let me give you a biblical definition of faith, and then we'll look at it. Faith is understanding and assent to a proposition. I think that's a bottom line basis of what faith is. Now, if you were to say to me, you can't, I owe you money, and you come to me and you say, where's my money? And I say to you, the check is in the mail. Okay, that's the proposition. The check is in the mail. So do you understand that proposition? Yeah, you know what a check is, right? You know what the mail is. You know, it might take a while, but you know, okay, you understand that. You understand what I'm saying to you, but do you believe it? <laughs> and see, that would depend on how well you know me. Or it depends, I guess, on the person who's saying that. Some people would say to me, the check's in the mail, and I'd be like, I doubt that's true at all, because you know the people, okay? But other people, if you trust them, if you believe in them, or you believe they're a person of character, and they say the check's in the mail, then you understand that. So that's what faith is. It's understanding. You have to understand first. You can't believe what you don't understand. You understand, and then you assent. Yes, I think that is true. You're trusting in what I said. Notice what the Bible says about Abraham. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. God made a promise to Abraham. He promised him children. He promised him that he would be a father of a great nation. Now, Abraham is about a hundred years old, okay, when he gets this promise. Never had kids. His wife is 90, all right, and she had been barren all her life. So look at Abraham's response to the promise. Verse 19, he says, He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, 
which was as good as dead, since he's about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Now, I want you to understand here, Abraham's faith was not weak. The Greek word used here for consider, kata noeo, and it means to consider attentively, to fix your eyes and your mind on. Now, this is one of those places where translations differ, and you have to you know, look at several translations trying to figure out what's happening here. The, the Scripture 2009, which is a fairly literal translation, says this, Not having grown weak in faith, he did not consider his own body. You see the difference there? The ESV says he considered his own body. The Scripture says he did not consider his own body. So what's the difference there? Well, it's like you're saying, okay, Abraham says, I know that I'm 100 years old, never had any kids, body's as good as dead, but I'm, not, I'm going to pretend that doesn't exist. I'm going to pretend I'm 20 years old and there won't be any problem at all. No, he considered his own body. He says, okay, I know the facts. You know, some people don't like to look at the facts. They want to make up something. Okay, the facts were he's 100 years old. You know, he's got a problem here. Now, the four oldest manuscripts of the New Testament don't have the negative. Abraham did consider his own body. He did consider Sarah's condition, and he believed God anyway. Okay, And the Scriptures bear this out. Look at Genesis 17, 17. Abraham fell on his face, and he laughed. And he said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? So Abraham faced the facts. He didn't deny them. He looked at the facts as they were, at their very worst, but having looked at them, he says, I'm going to believe what God says to me, despite the facts. He believed God in the face of opposition. Faith does not close its eyes to reality. He knew physically it was impossible for him and Sarah to bear children, but he believed God. Verse 20 and 21 says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. God made me a promise. I believe you'll keep it. So we see from verse 21 that faith is believing a promise. It's understanding and assent to a proposition. See, you can't trust God for what He never promised. That's not faith. You can hope maybe God will do this and hope this will work out this way, but you can't believe God for something He hasn't promised. Abraham believed what God told him. That is faith. And here's what you have to understand. No matter what the subject, whether it's God or botany, the psychology or linguistics of belief is identical. See, believing that 2 plus 2 is 4, that's arithmetic. Believing that asparagus belongs to the lily family, that's botany. Botany is not mathematics, but the psychology or linguistics of believing is identical. Believing is always thinking a proposition is true. Okay, this is so important. Because in Christianity, you know, have you ever seen the gospel tract, Missing Heaven by 18 Inches? In other words, you didn't believe the right way. There's only one way to believe. You either believe or you don't. If you understand the facts, you either believe them or you don't. But they say, well, you believe with your head, not with your heart. That's just absolute nonsense. And to see that in Christianity is just nonsense. How do you believe? Does your heart, is your heart a muscle? Does it believe something? 
But they're saying, see, that's not, it's only true belief if your heart believes it. No, belief is belief. And that's what I want you to understand. All right? The differences between various beliefs lie in the objects or the propositions believed, not the nature of faith. Faith must begin with knowledge. You can't believe what you don't know or understand, although the Catholics say you can. Okay? The Catholics have faith where you just, you don't understand it, but you just believe it. I don't know how you do that, all right? Belief is the act of assenting to something understood. But understanding alone is not belief. I understand the theology of evolution. I don't believe it. I understand it, but it's wrong. I believe it's wrong, all right? So the Christian life starts with an act of faith. That's how we become Christians. We believe that Christ will give us eternal life if we trust Him, Because he says so in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. See, that's a promise. When I believe in Christ, I've given everlasting life. When I come to the living God as a guilty sinner, trusting in Yeshua and Him alone to do for me what I cannot do for myself, I'm engaged in an act of faith. I've never seen God. I've never seen this place called heaven. I've never seen Yeshua. But by faith, those things which I cannot see become realities to me. They take on substance for me. And by faith, I gain assurance and conviction about the things that my eyes cannot see. That's what faith is all about. By trusting God for my eternal salvation, that's just the beginning. That's the start of a journey that can only be traveled successfully by faith. And I think many, many believers have trusted Christ for their salvation, but they're not living by faith. They're not trusting God each and every day of their lives. See, every day and in every way, we should be trusting God in our daily lives. But are we? Do we really trust Him? You know, when you're hurting and your life seems to be coming apart at the seams, do you trust Him? When we fail to trust God, we doubt His sovereignty, we question His goodness. God views our distrust as seriously as He views our disobedience. When the children of Israel were hungry, they spoke out against God. you got to remember what they'd already seen, what they'd already gone through, and they say this. They spoke against God saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? Well, he just dried up the Red Sea. You saw ten plagues in Egypt. You saw, you know, can he provide it? Yeah, he could. He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streamed. We're in the desert and water's coming out of a rock. That should give you a clue. He can kind of do whatever he wants to. Can he also give bread or provide meat for this people? They're questioning him. Therefore, when Yahweh heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel. Why was God so angry with them? The next verse tells us, because they did not believe in God, they did not trust His saving power. They didn't trust Him. They're out in the wilderness. And again, you've got to remember what they just went through to get in the wilderness. But they don't trust Him. And God is angry with these people because they won't trust Him. In order to trust God, we have to view all of our circumstances through the eyes of faith. Because faith pleases God. 
Your faith in God is the bottom line in your ability to deal with difficulty. Let's say, let me put it this way, your faith in God is the bottom line in your ability to deal with life. Because life can be difficult, alright? A knowledge of God is essential in the matter of trust. And again, that's why we read our Bibles constantly, continually. So we come to know God, because the more we know Him, the more we can trust Him. The Bible is the revelation of God. So in knowing Scripture, we come to know God. And in knowing God, we come to trust Him. It's hard, let me put it this way, it's stupid to trust someone you don't know. It just is. I've had people say to me, do you trust me? And I'm like, I know. I don't know you. Why would I trust you? That'd be dumb. You know, I have to come to know you. There's other people that could ask me that. I'd say, absolutely, I trust you. I know you, so yeah, I do trust you. Other people I know, and I'd say, no, I wouldn't trust you. <laughs> you know? But you have to know them to know if you would trust them or not. But you can't trust somebody you don't know. So it's hard for some Christians to trust God. They just don't have a relationship with Him. Psalm 78, 22 because they did not believe in God. They just wouldn't trust Him. I believe the first and foremost thing we need to know about God is that He is sovereign. But most of the church today denies the absolute sovereignty of God. They will say that God's sovereign. But then when you start pushing it, oh, well, not that sovereign, okay? I mean, Christians speak of accidents or things just happening by chance or whatever. One of the major problems in the church today in the matter of spiritual instability is the wide acceptance of Arminian theology. Calvinism, Arminianism, they're on opposite ends of the spiritual spectrum. And traditional Calvinism or Reformed theology says God is sovereign over everything. Period. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the Almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and on earth, so that none can defeat His counsel, thwart His purpose, or resist His will. Our God, I love this verse, our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Wouldn't that be awesome to do anything you wanted? Anything you decide to do, I can do it. Psalm 135.6 says, Whatever Yahweh pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the depths. That's our God, people. He does whatever He pleases. We can't do that. We can't do whatever we please because too many things are out of our control. But God can do whatever He pleases because nothing is out of His control. The Bible clearly teaches that God is sovereign. First Chronicles 29.11 Yours, O Yahweh, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Yahweh, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you. You rule over all. In your hand are power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. God did not simply create the world and then walk away. Okay, that's called deism. He constantly sustains what he has created. In the 17th century, deism came up and they constructed a God who created the universe and then he walked away. He let it run on its own natural laws. In other words, like a watch, he just wound it up and said, have a good life. And many Christians are practical deists. They act as if God left the world and they're just on their own fending for themselves. 
Isaiah 46, 9 through 11 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I'm God. There's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of counsel from a far country, I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will do it. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the Almighty. He's the possessor of all power in heaven and earth so that no one, nobody, defeats His counsel, thwarts His purposes, or resists His will. The sovereignty of God is absolute. It's irresistible. It's infinite. God does as He pleases, only as He pleases, always as He pleases, Listen, whatever takes place in time is the outworking of that which He decreed from eternity. Now that's a little strong for most people. One commentator writes this, The Bible teaches that God is all-powerful and He has complete authority over everything that happens. Right? But, oh boy, when you see a but there, okay, you know you're in trouble. In other words, I'm saying this but doesn't really, i got to come up with, you know. We must never forget, he says, that he also cho- chose to give us free will. He does not use his power to overrule our freedom to choose the direction we go in life. So then, does God have a complete authority over everything if he has no authority over your will? That's kind of, I mean, this is not master's degree logic here, people, okay? If God is sovereign over everything, then you can, but you can't tell you what to do. Like this commentator, many of us are prepared to grant God's sovereignty over nature, over impersonal circumstances, such as maybe a mechanical failure in an airplane. After all, nature doesn't have a will of its own, right? So it's okay for God to control that. He's free to operate through the physical laws as He pleases, but the concept of divine sovereignty over people can seem to destroy the free will of humans and make them no more than puppets on the stage of God. That's how some people feel about it. Yet the Bible repeatedly affirms God's sovereignty over everything. Here's the choice, people. We can go and be led by our emotions... And what we think about God, what we feel about, oh, we can let the Bible tell us who He is and then follow that God, okay? The Bible repeatedly affirms God's sovereignty over everything, including people. It speaks of God making the Egyptians favorably disposed to the Israelites, okay? Look at Exodus 12. Now, remember what just happened, people. Okay, we had the plagues, all right? And you think the Egyptians are pretty sick of these Israelites and Moses and just got to be very angry at them and get the heck out of here, leave us alone. There's nothing left of our country. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing. Hey, we're going to leave your country. It's a mess now. We're leaving. How about giving us some gold and silver and some clothing and stuff? I'd be like, get the heck out of here. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So that they left them, what they gave them what they asked for. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. They took everything and left. The people gladly gave it to them because God had given the people favor. 
The Bible tells us of God moving the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to fulfill his word in Ezra 1.1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all the kingdom and also put it in writing. So God is controlling this man Cyrus to do what he wants to do. The Bible talks about God causing King Nebuchadnezzar, official, to show favor and sympathy towards Daniel. Daniel 1.9, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. So God obviously must be controlling these people somehow that they're giving His people favor. I think one of the strongest such assertions is in Proverbs 21.1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever He will. I mean, the cry there should be, what about free will? What about the king's free will? How can he just turn the king's heart? By the way, the heart there is the thinking process, okay? He turns the king's thinking wherever he wills. The general truth of God's sovereignty over the hearts of all people is taught here by the strongest illustration, his uncontrollable sway over the most absolute of all wills, the king's heart. Now, in our day and time of limited monarchies and figurehead royalty, it's kind of difficult to appreciate fully the force of this statement. In Solomon's time, the king was an absolute monarch. Okay, There was no legislator to pass laws he didn't like. There was no Supreme Court to restrain his actions. The king's word was the last word. That's it. If he wanted you dead, you died. He wanted you to live, you lived. He did whatever he wanted to do. That's what a king was all about. His authority over his realm was unconditional and unrestrained. (coughs) Excuse me. Yet this verse teaches that God controls the heart of the most powerful monarch on earth as easily as a farmer directs the flow of water in his irrigation canals. The argument then is from greater to lesser. If God controls the king's heart, surely he controls everybody else's. All must move before his sovereign influence. The king's heart, he says, just like a stream of water, God can move it whatever direction he wants, go in any direction he wants. All of us at times find ourselves and our future, long range or immediately, in the hands of other people, right? I mean, we're all controlled. There's other people that direct the affairs of our life on a human level. I mean, right now, many people are having to decide between getting a vaccination or losing their job. And they're being forced to put some unknown substance in their body. And by the way, the FDA says it needs 75 years to release the Pfizer vaccine data. Just give us 75 years, we'll tell you what's in the shot you just took. What? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. 75? Why would it take 75 years to tell us what's in there? Some? Yeah, because who? Because no, they'll be dead by then. The people who made it. There won't be any accountability. Just give us 75 years. We'll tell you what's in it. But the people are being made to choose or lose their jobs. They can't even take care of their families if they don't do what they're being told to do. Now, that just seems crazy and out of control. Or we could maybe focus on the fact that government officials can arrest us and put us in prison with no trial 
for holding political views different than theirs, a.k.a. January 6th. Do you know that there's people in prison still from January 6th, have not had a trial, have not been accused of anything, they're still in prison under miserable conditions today? And why? Because the justice system trying to say, don't you dare go against our politics. This is what happens. It's a fear tactic. And believe me, it works. A professor at school can determine the academic success of a graduate student or not. I don't like you. I'm going to make sure you don't pass this class. A supervisor can block your career. But here's what we have to understand. All these things are happening, and we see people ruling, and we see people controlling decisions. But in reality, we're not at their mercy because God sovereignly rules over their decisions and actions. God moves people to do His will. He restrains people from accomplishing the evil they would normally carry out. A striking illustration of this is found in what appears to be in almost passing comment in Exodus 34. I love these verses. They just tell us so much. God's telling the Israelites, three times in the year shall all your males appear before Yahweh God, the God of Israel. Now, what he's saying is here, you have to, he's, where he's going to put his name, you have to go three times a year. In other words, Jerusalem. You've got to go to Jerusalem three times a year to worship me at these pilgrim feasts. He says, For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your border, No one shall cover your land when you go up to appear before Yahweh, your God, three times in a year. Now, commenting on these verses, the Faith Life Study Bible says this, The three annual pilgrimage also were a test of faith. With the men absent from the fields and homes, an enemy might take advantage of stealing crops, land, property, even a man's wife and children. I mean, you're just going to walk away from your farm and just leave it totally vulnerable? God promised that if the Israelite men are faithful, He will prevent such loss. If we took this passage and applied it to our present situation, what if God commanded Israel, what He commanded Israel to do would be equivalent to commanding our nation to shut down all commerce, close all its educational institutions, furlough all its military personnel simultaneously, and gather all those people into one giant Christian assembly three times a year? Think how vulnerable our nation would be by doing those on the three different occasions. Yet, this is what God commanded the Israelites to do. But along with that command, He gave them a promise. Promise that no one would even covet their land during those times. Look at He says, no one shall covet your land. Not only will they not invade you, they won't want what you have. How can God make that kind of promise? Because He sovereignly rules over the hearts of men. How else could He make that kind of promise? I'll make sure they don't want your land. What? I mean, they're walking by this, look at this little property, this farm is gone, everybody's gone. The men are gone, the women are just, we can do whatever we want here. No, we don't want it. Let's move on. Why don't we want that? That looks like a nice, no, just go on. God is sovereign. Not only are over our actions, He is sovereign over our desires. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities. As Israel's moving around, God puts these tares on the cities that were around them, so they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. 
They're like, whoa, we're scared to death. No, we're not going out after those people. We're not going to mess with them. Deuteronomy 11.25 No one shall be able to stand against you. Yahweh your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread as He has promised. So don't worry about it. No one's going to bother you at all because God planted a fear of the Israelites in the hearts of all the people so they wouldn't pursue Him. They didn't have to fight Him. See, if we're going to trust God, we have to understand that He is in control of every aspect of our lives. The doctrine of God's sovereignty clearly affirms that we can trust Him. Lamentations 3.37-38 says, Who has spoken... And it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it. It is not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come. Unless the Lord commanded it, it doesn't happen. Listen, no one can act outside the sovereign will of God or against it. So rather than being offended by the Bible's assertion of God's sovereignty in both good and evil, believers should be comforted in it. But I I dare say that so many people are offended by this. Like, how dare God do that? Well, that just shows they don't know who God is. All right? Whatever it is that we're going through, two things you have to be sure of. If If you're sure of two things, you'll have comfort. All right? Number one, God is controlling it. Okay? Now you say, yeah, I know He controls everything, but I might not like what He's going to do. Right? Yeah, that's a good possibility. But number two here is, if you're His child by faith in Yeshua, He loves you. People, that is a winning combination. The sovereign God loves you, controls everything. How comforting is that? We need to learn to trust Him, even when we don't understand, because faith pleases God. So do you know Him well enough to trust Him no matter how painful or fearful a situation may be. God controls everything that happens. Everything. Listen, if a businessman has a total financial collapse, it's an act of God. If a loving Christian parent loses a child through sickness or murder, that's an act of God. Now listen, I know that when I say that, most people who call themselves Bible believers have a fit. Okay, They just do. The response of most people would be, you're crazy. God is good. God is loving. God is kind. He would never do anything like that. Really? What does the Scripture say? Because you can be led by your emotions and believe whatever you want about God and not be true, or you can go to the Bible and find out who He really is and then believe in Him for who He is. Notice what Job says. Job one twenty one. And he said, now you know what happens with Job, okay, he's gone through all this, he lost everything financially, ten of his children have died, and here's Job's response, naked I came from my mother's womb, in other words, I didn't start out with anything, naked I'll return, I'm going back with nothing, the Lord gave, Yahweh has taken away. What is he saying when he says Yahweh has taken away? He is saying, God just killed my ten children. Right? That's what happened. He, he blames it on God. He said, Yahweh, take it away. Now listen, I believe Job was a real man, not a mythological figure. He's mentioned by Ezekiel. He's classified as one of the three great men of the Tanakh, along with Noah and Daniel. He's mentioned also by James, who refers to Job's patience and steadfast endurance. He was a contemporary of Abraham, most likely. 
So this book goes back to the very beginning of biblical history. After a total financial collapse, and I mean one right after the, his servants are coming back, you just lost all your sheep, you just lost all your cattle, you just everything's gone, and your ten children just died. And Job says, Yahweh has taken away. Is that what the scripture says? That's what the text says. Look it up in any translation you want. Okay? That's not a bad translation. They all say that. Job is saying, God did this. God destroyed me financially. He killed all my children. Now, most Christians today would go crazy over this and say, well, Job must be demon-possessed. And I've heard preachers say that. Job is just out of his mind with pain here. He doesn't know what he's saying. Okay? <laughs> but, but they're really the ones out of their mind because the Scripture makes it clear. In verse 20, it says, Then Job rose, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, and he fell on the ground and cursed God. No, he fell on the ground and he worshipped. What? What is wrong with this guy? He just lost everything. Job is not angry. He doesn't attack God. He worships. And when he says Yahweh is taken away, he's not only recognizing God's sovereignty, but he rejoiced in it. Job trusted God because he knew God. He knew that God was sovereign, and in this he rejoiced. Now, just in case you think Job is wrong in saying that God did this, the inspired writer of the book makes a comment to avoid a misunderstanding. Lest anyone say that Job should have attributed Satan's work to God, he says this, In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Well, he just said, God killed my ten children. The commentator of the Scripture says he didn't charge God with wrong. Does that fit your theology? God killing and destroying? If it doesn't, you better work on some changes in your theology because God's not going to change. Okay? Job's rock of refuge and hope when everything else seemed to be crumbling is the absolute sovereignty of God. Now, most of our grief and pain does not come as a clear punishment for our sins. I think sometimes if, we, if that was true, we'd understand. Okay, yeah, well, God's doing this because I really messed up. But most of it comes out of nowhere and it just really baffles our sense of justice. That's why the book of Job is so relevant. Job's suffering seems to come out of nowhere and have no connection to his character. His story is recorded for us so that we can have some help in living through these kind of calamities. In the midst of life, life's worst circumstances, Job worships. And I hear Christians today just go crazy because they get a flat tire. How can God allow that to happen to me? I'm on my way to church to worship Him, and he, you know, and they're just mad at God. And I'm like, wow, you people are clueless, man. You're just clueless when that happens. When you hear the word worship, what picture comes to your mind? What do you think of? Maybe you think of a service with instruments and songs and hymns and, of course, preaching, right? That can be worship. The word worship means honor paid to a superior being. It means to give honor, homage, respect, adoration, praise, and glory to God. The Hebrew word for worship is a powerful one. It describes the physical act of prostrating yourself on the floor before a sovereign. Someone who has complete control over you. I think a simple and working definition of worship is this. 
Worship is aligning ourselves with God's will, both written and providential. Now, by aligning ourselves with God's written will, the written word, we just say, okay, here's what the Bible says. We're supposed to do this. We live this way because the Bible says live this way. Providentially means whatever God does in your life, circumstantially, you align yourself. You say, okay, God, this is God's will. This is what God wants for me at this time. And you go along with that. It's you align yourself, written, both the written and the providential will of God. Whatever happens in your life, that's the providential will of God. We have to understand, worship's not a spiritual warm fuzzy on a Sunday morning. It's God's people actively responding to Him, recognizing God's sovereign rights. Yahweh gave, Yahweh is taken away. Job praised Yahweh. It's truly remarkable that Job followed adversity with adoration. He followed woe with worship. I think the only reason he could do this is because he knew God. He had a relationship with Him. He knew that God was sovereign, and he trusted Him in the midst of the worst circumstances, and he finds himself worshiping. That just tells me that Job knew God. See, because when you know who God is, and I think today we have brought God down to our level, so He should kind of do what we want Him to do, and if He doesn't, we're going to be mad at Him. No, He's a supreme sovereign who speaks things into existence. And when you understand the, the separation between you and God, then you fall before Him and praise Him that you have breath in your lungs. Many years ago, there's a story of a military officer and his wife were aboard a ship. And this ship is caught in a raging storm on the ocean. And seeing the frantic look in her eyes, the man tried unsuccessfully to alleviate her fears. And suddenly she grasped his sleeve and she cried out, How can you be so calm? And he stepped back a few feet and he drew out his sword. And he pointed it right at her heart and he said, Are you afraid of this? Without hesitation, she answered, Of course not. Why not? He inquired. Because it's in your hand. You love me too much to hurt me. To this he replied, I know, the one who holds the winds and the water in the hollow of his hands, and he will surely care for us. The officer was not disturbed because he had put his trust in the sovereign Lord. Now, I read that story being a sailor, being on a ship at sea in the midst of storms, and I'm like, if you pulled a sword out and stuck it to somebody's chest in the middle of a storm like that, you're kind of crazy because you have no control over what's happening. I mean, people are going all over the place. You know, you're trying to walk down the hall and you're walking on this wall and you're walking on this wall because the ship is tossing to and fro and all over the place. It's fun to watch the cooks try to cook you an egg. And it goes down the griddle and you got a six foot long egg to eat. So, you know, it's just it's a funny story because I picture that sword being pulled out and be like, get that away from me. You know, we're rocking and rolling. On steady ground, it'd be a different little story. But <laughs> but anyway, you get the point of the story, right? She, she wasn't afraid because she, she knew he loved her. And that's why we shouldn't be afraid. We know God loves us. And as we grow in our faith, we'll learn to trust Him in the worst circumstances. Understanding that all occasions of pain and sorrow, they're under His absolute control. Faith has the confidence that our suffering is under the control of an all-powerful, all-loving God. Our suffering has meaning and purpose in God's eternal plan. And He brings into our lives only that which is for His glory and our good. 
Job knew and he trusted God, which allowed him to worship in the worst circumstances. He didn't understand what was happening. He just trusted God. That's what it's about. A lot of times we're not going to understand. Why this? Why this tragedy we don't understand? Another person who was understood God and who absolutely trusted God in the worst situation was Joseph. The story that was read this morning. He understood the sovereignty of God, and so he trusted God through the worst of circumstances. In Genesis 37, it tells us when Joseph was 17, his brothers hated him and wanted to kill him. And it's daddy's fault. Daddy favored him over the other brothers, so they were jealous, so they hated him. And they talked about killing him. He was, gone, he was sent out to check on his brothers, and when his brothers saw him, hey, here comes that younger brother, let's kill him. And one of the brothers said, no, let's not kill him. Let's sell him into slavery. So they took him and they sold him to a band of Ishmaelites as they passed by. That sure would cause anxiety and fear in most people. right? How would you like to feel that you know, my ten brothers just talked about killing me. Then they decided, let's sell me into slavery. That's a, that's a terrible rejection there, people. That's a, that's a sad situation. Well, Genesis 39 tells us that Joseph is sold as a slave when he gets to Egypt to Potiphar who was an Egyptian. And Potiphar puts him in charge of his whole household because he's, you know, God's given him favor again. So now he's in charge of Potiphar's household. And Potiphar's gone. And Potiphar's wife tries to get Joseph to commit adultery with her. And so he's like, "Um, no, I'm not going to sin against my God and do this. So he literally, she's grabbing his coat and he literally leaves his coat and he runs away. So Potiphar's scorned wife has him put in prison. Because he wouldn't go along with her plan. So here's Joseph does what's right. He wouldn't sin. And because he wouldn't sin, he went to prison. Okay? That'd be good. God, I've tried to honor you and look what happens to me. This is not right. No, that wasn't his perspective at all. How would you feel in that situation? God, I'm trying to do what's right and I get this for it? After 13 years of living as a slave, Joseph interprets a dream for Pharaoh. And because of this, Pharaoh promotes Joseph to the number two man and the most powerful nation on earth at that time. And because of his position in Egypt, he's able to take care of his very brothers who hated him and sold him into slavery because there's a famine coming on the land. And that's the dream he interprets. So there's going to be seven years of plenty, then seven years of famine. So Joseph is in charge. He puts all this food up so he can take care of things. And you see Joseph interacting with his brothers, and to me, I just, I marvel because he has no bitterness or unforgiveness towards his brothers. Because he knew that God sovereignly ordered the events of his life. And I can prove that to you, and I will in just a minute. In other words, God's sovereignty was very practical for Joseph. I mean, he had plenty of years to stew on what his brothers had done to him. And notice what Joseph tells his brothers when he finally reveals them. So they're, they're coming to him for food. And he says, now don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. So he just reminds remember guys, you sold me into this situation. Then he says this, God sent me. Joseph saw, listen, the hatred of his brothers as God's sovereign hand. He saw, this is God, he said. He says in verse 45-7, he says, And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, 
and to keep alive for you many survivors. In other words, God sent me here to take care of you, the people who sold me into slavery, the people who hated me. That's why I'm here, so I can take care of you. He saw God as the one who put him in the slavery. He says in verse 8, So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, and a lord of all his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Three times in this chapter, he stresses this idea. God sent me before you. God sent me before you. It was not you, but God. Joseph had a divine viewpoint. He saw things from God's perspective. He saw his brothers as instruments in God's providence to get him into Egypt. It was his brothers who sold him into slavery, but Joseph said, it was not you who sent me here, but God. His strength, his comfort in adversity came from his knowledge of God. He trusted in the sovereign God. You know... I would at least had some fun with these brothers. You know, at least make them suffer for a little bit. At least give them a hard time. He doesn't do that. I mean, he messed with them a little bit. But not much, okay? Not much. Now, many years later, so, so the brothers all end up moving to Egypt with the father. They all come down there. He gives them land in Goshen. He takes care of them, all right? They're delivered from the famine because of what he went through. Well, many years later, Joseph's father died. And of course, now his brothers are afraid that Joseph's going to try to get revenge on them for selling him as a slave because daddy's dead. We're in trouble now, guys. Look at chapter 50 and we see Joseph's response to them. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. Okay, get what they're saying here. We did evil to Joseph. They know that. There's no doubt about that. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. They're full of it. They're making stuff up, okay? But they're trying to protect themselves. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Again, twice they're admitting, okay, what we did was evil. What we did was wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God, your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? In other words, it's not my position to take revenge. As for you, you meant evil against me. Joseph understood this. You guys are evil and you meant evil. You did it to hurt me. That was your plan. That was your intention. But watch what he says. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. If you don't know this verse, Genesis 50, 20, You need to memorize it, you need to mark it, you need to get familiar with it, because this is going to happen to you a lot in time. People are going to mean evil against you. They're going to say evil, they're going to do evil, they're going to, just because they're evil, they're going to do like this to be. You have to understand, whatever the situation, God meant it for good. So Joseph tells his brothers, he's not in the place of God, meaning that he's not going to take revenge against them. Joseph knew that vengeance belonged to the Lord. Now very carefully, He tells his brothers in verse 20, you meant evil. He knew that. But he didn't have bitterness against them because he knew that 
God was behind this. Because of all that happened, he's in a place now to save the lives of the very brothers that hated him and wanted to kill him. For 13 years, things didn't seem too good for Joseph. That's a long time, 13 years. But in the midst of his suffering, he trusts God. For 13 years, Joseph had no idea why his brothers hated him. For 13 years, he trusted God when he couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. But he knew God was sovereign. He knew he controlled all things, so he just rested in him. Believer, there's great comfort in theology proper for our daily lives. When we really understand the truth of Scripture, when we really understand what, who God is, the hurts of your life are controlled by God for your good. That's just what the Bible teaches. And the way that you handle problems and temptations and trials and difficulties is a reflection of your view of God. If you know God, if you know that He's omnipresent, He's omniscient, He's all-powerful, if you understand that He loves you, why would you ever worry? He's sovereign. When a situation seems to be falling apart, it's a time to sit back and say, I can't wait to see what God's going to do. It might be a while, okay? But he's working everything out for your good and his glory. Everything that happens is for his eternal purpose. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that for those who, excuse, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are the called, according to his purpose. It is, it is often in times of great pain and loss to us that Yahweh is working for our good. We may not see it, and this is where trust comes in. I want you to, back to the story of Jacob and Joseph, I want you to notice what Jacob said here in verse 36 of chapter 42. The brothers had been to Egypt, they came back, and it says, And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. He thinks Joseph's dead. Simeon is no more because Simeon was kept in Egypt. And now you want Benjamin to go back there? Because they, you know, Joseph told him, unless you bring your younger brother back, you're not getting any food. And then he says this, all this has come against me. He is dealing with some difficult circumstances right now. He thought Joseph to be dead. Joseph was the son of Rachel, his beloved wife. There's a famine in the land. They don't have any food. Simeon and God to Egypt for food. But Joseph, who didn't know it was Joseph, but the prime minister kept him there, demanding that Benjamin come and join him. And so Joseph's further bereaved at that time thought, I'm going to lose Benjamin too, the younger son of Rachel. Joseph's dead. Simeon is being held captive. And they couldn't get more food unless Benjamin went to Egypt. And Jacob responded, all this has come against me. You ever felt that way? You ever look at life's circumstances and just feel like it's all collapsing around you? You know, with all that's happening in our country, you may feel things are out of control. All this seems to be... It's not. God hasn't left the throne. None of this surprises God. None of it's difficult for Him. In actuality... At the very moment that Jacob uttered, all this has come against me, everything was in fact working for him, not against him. He thinks Joseph's dead. He's not. Joseph, the son he thought was dead, is alive. He's the prime minister of Egypt, 
which is the greatest kingdom on earth at that time. Egypt is the place that had food that could solve the famine problems. In addition, Joseph, the prime minister, the beloved son of Rachel, was longing to be with his family. The very time when Jacob said, all this has come against me, was the very time when all things were working to the ultimate blessing and good of him and his family. He just didn't see it at that time. It was through Joseph's unjust treatment that grace came to the family. To Jacob, it all looked horrible. To him, life seemed to be over. But in fact, however, the sovereign God was working these terrible circumstances for their good. I love this text. All this has come against. See, I know the story. So when I read that, I'm like smiling. I'm thinking, oh, just hang on a little bit. You're going to see how good it is. You're going to see how great it is. Your son's not dead. Your other sons are going to be fine. He's going to take you to Egypt. They're going to take care of you. You got it made now, okay? All this has come against me. Believer, no matter what happens to you, the Bible teaches God meant it for good. What He wants from our lives is that we trust Him. He's worthy of our trust. But it's easy to trust God when everything's going our way. It's the difficult situations of life that bring us to our knees and cause us to question. That's the time we need to trust Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You, Lord. I thank You for Scripture, the truth of Scripture. The, Father, the joy it brings us to read some of these texts, understanding the outcome when the, those involved didn't understand it. I can just see Jacob crying out, all oh, this is against me, my life is miserable, everything's happening to me. And at that very moment, his son is preparing for their entrance to Egypt. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the clarity of the Word of God. Thank you that you rule and reign over every circumstance, over the hearts of men, over the wills of men. And thank you for the fact that you love your children. Lord, what a joy it is. How can we be afraid? Knowing you love us and you control all things. Thank you for your grace in our lives. Amen. All right, questions, comments? Uh, Good question here. Someone asks, how should we pray for the sick in view of the sovereignty of God? That's a good question, isn't it? Let me tell you how I pray, okay, for the sick in view of God's sovereignty. When someone is dealing with something, I pray that God would give them wisdom that He would reveal Himself to them through these circumstances, that the circumstances would draw them to Him. I don't too often pray for people's healing because they're in that situation for a reason, okay? I just pray that God would reveal Himself and this would be an educational time for those people. That's why they're in that situation. So, you know, situations aren't bad when you're walking with God. They're just not, okay? Everything is for a reason, for a purpose. Too often we're so focused on getting out of it, we're not focused on what are you trying to teach me in it, Lord. I've got another question here. Boy, this is, this is a good question. Anybody want to answer this one? Why do so many churches teach free will? Well, people like it. Yeah, pe- people like it. All right, Jeff says, go back and listen to his message on the history of Arminianism. People love that idea because you want to think you're, you're, you're in control. You can do what you want, when you want, 
Free will is just a great thing. The Bible doesn't teach it, okay? It's just a, it's a fallacy, okay? The idea of a free will would be a will that's influenced by nothing. Your whole life, your whole circumstance, everything you've gone through influences your decisions. There's no will could be free, okay? It'd have to have a total an environment where nothing, you know, there's no difference between this choice and this choice. You always are pulled in one direction or another. But I, I, again, bottom line, in my opinion, I think the church teaches that because people like it. And the idea, see, with, here's how it works with the church. Okay, you want to get as many people as you can. The more people you get, the more money you get in. And the way to keep people happy is tell them what they want to hear. Now, I'm not smart enough to play that game, all right? So I just, <laughs> I just feel like I'll tell you what the, I think the Bible says. And if you don't like it, there's other places to go, okay? Well, someone has said something here about Revelation 17, 17. It says, For God has put into, the, into their hearts to carry out His plan by having one purpose, to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. So God, you know, man plans, but God directs His steps. This is just the teaching of the Bible. It's not popular, okay? That's why people like the free will stuff. They feel more in control. People love that kind of stuff. They don't want a sovereign God. I fought against it. You know, I really did. But I'll tell you, once I came to grasp the truth of it, it's to me the most comforting doctrine there is. It just is. I mean, God's in control. This is, this is awesome, you know? Yeah, it is just such a, I don't know, such a blessing to me to know that he's in control. Because I can't control life, I can't control people, but he's in control. And, and again, that coupled with the fact I know he loves me, that's a great winning combination for me.